0: Out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest this week. It's going to be the turn of Omega Tribe because I recently spoke to who? Vivian. They're a lead sort of guitarist vocalist and still keeping the band very much alive and going. Um, so we spoke about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. Anyway, this is the interview. If you want to know any more information, they have a very good and active Facebook page and a website as well, which I will give you that link in the notes. But anyway, this is the interview. Stroke conversation, really. Um, so after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative mu- um, moment. And uh, yes... When something suddenly sprung forth and life was never the same again. Anyway, who's going to tell us about his musical awakening? Who, take it away.
1: I don't, I mean, I think I'm a similar age to you. Um, I was born in 1964. I think my first awareness of music was my sister. I had an older sister. And I think the first records that she was allowed to bring in the house were those old top of the pops, um, collections of cover versions um, that were kind of you know they, they were terrible um but i suppose at least there was an awareness of, of those songs in that era um, yes. yeah um and top of the pops really and i had an elder brother who was quite into heavy metal right so i think the first kind of paying concert i went to was the blue oyster cults uh, off the back of their single don't fear the reaper they were kind of you know they had and japan was supporting and uh I think I must have been thirteen at that
0: one. That was such um, a good gig. That was such a good gig. yeah. <laughs> you got your you got your money's worth, or two pounds fifty p probably. But um, yes, certainly. yeah. <laughs> if only yeah. you'd taken pictures, you could have just been so famous. You know, it was just one of those things documenting these moments, isn't it? We yeah, yeah. We, look, we look back and think, oh yeah. If only. Yeah. Luckily, we sometimes keep the uh, ticket stub. Well, it's interesting because uh, going back to your top of the pop albums that I do remember Mm -hmm. um, because we had one I think the top of the poppers sing The Carpenters which had a massive influence on my life because even Mm -hmm. though it wasn't quite The Carpenters the songs were embedded in my DNA which have been with me ever since because I thought lyrically they were just stunning and um, I still think they're stunning so there you go but I I know from talking to people after you know decades later yeah, some of the versions of things like Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze, done by mm. some sort of studio musician, slightly mm. lost some, some of the quality mm. that Hendrix had. So, but mm. um, like you said, you, you got to hear some of the songs, even though it was a yeah. weird, weird idea, actually.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was a weird idea. I mean yeah, I guess it was just to get my own copyright or whatever and pay people. Yes. properly. But yeah, I can remember like, you know, versions of Rider White Swan and we had a lot of them. Um,
0: yeah,
1: uh, in our house, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Did yeah. You, I mean, like,
0: you you had an older brother and sister. Were your parents yeah. kind of into music? Did they? No,
1: I mean, well, they were into music, but they weren't really into pop music. So perhaps this is why the only, you know, they, they, it was only those cover version things. They were, uh, I would describe them as the kind of post-war generation that wanted to kind of improve themselves. So their focus was on um, that kind of tradition like the Workers Educational Institute, the WAA, i don't know if that means anything to you—night yeah. school and um, so my dad was interested in studying philosophy. He never, they never went to you know higher education or anything like that. They were kind of the war um, generation, um, but they when they first lived together when they were first married, they had a flat in Covent Garden. When Covent Garden was a much less kind of glamorous place than it is now, it was a fruit and vegetable market yeah. with you know very cheap rent. Um, So they spent a lot of time in in the London Coliseum and the Royal Opera House and, you know, the the rush for cheap seats. So their tradition was classical rather than pop. And they were a little bit snooty about pop music. Um, Yeah.
0: Excellent. Did your dad do national service at all?
1: No, it was the Second World War. He was in the Second World War. Oh wow! Um, right,
0: he was because yeah. my because I wondered if your because my dad did national service. He was a bit yeah. too young for that. Yeah, you know, he was during you know he was alive during the war, but he was too yeah. young. But um, no, yeah. God, your dad would have had a whole yeah. different experience. It's interesting the self improvement period actually. You know, yeah. it's kind of a whole social, yeah, because mm. schooling your dad probably didn't have much school, schooling at that stage, so no. he would have just been playing catch up later. Yes, yeah. Uh, a whole different gig so when did you you know during the during the sort of 70s period obviously having an older brother and sister is Mm. kind of majorly kind of interesting and sometimes Mm. really important because we often looked up to our old elders and his or her friends and think how cool they were so heavy metal was obviously something that probably seemed very exciting compared to what was on top of the pops when did you Mm. start to think about being in a band at this stage?
1: Well. I lived in uh, East Barnet, New Barnet, and in New Barnet, there was a pub called the Duke of Lancaster. And I think things were a lot more lax in those days, because from the age of about 15, I would regularly go in there and they had live music. You know, it was just free pub rock and it was on the circuit. So there's some decent bands. There were the regulars. Um, I mean, I wanted to be in the band from the moment I saw the back line when I walked into the very first gig, you know, it was so exciting. That whole thing of just all that equipment. So kind of, yeah, very, I think I bought a guitar when I was about 13, self-taught, you know, never had any lessons and uh, learned a few basic chords and and thrashed it to bits, really. Um, Yeah, so from an early age, in terms of my, my siblings, you know, my brother was into heavy metal. I kind of steered away from that a little bit. It was a bit raucous for me. But we did go to some good gigs, like I saw Motorhead, you know, in the 70s, which was, you know, great. Um, And my sister tried to steer me towards black music, you know, um, she, yeah, she had a lot of, you know, things like Graham Central Station, those kind of bands and funk. um, Right. So she might have
0: been into the, yeah, the Philly sound or the, yes, earth, wind and fire. Yeah. Yeah, Delphonics and people like that. Yes, well, top top of the pops had that sort of movement, didn't they? That we loved so much, you know, Barry White and the stylistics. I probably said that. Yeah. So yeah, it's kind of interesting. So when you got to 16, did you did you leave school at that stage or did you stay on for Further education.
1: I left, I, I kind of tried the the, the um, sixth form, but I didn't really last very long and I just lost interest in it. Really. So I, I left when I was still 16. I didn't make it through that year. And I went straight into working in an office. where I didn't last very long at that. Um, and then, you know, I mean, it kind of playing music the whole time, uh, just in, in different bands and just with friends in bedrooms and all that kind of thing um and then met people uh I mean I Amiga mean, tribe was it kind of we were all went to the same school uh we didn't hang out particularly during our school years but in you know by some of the time we were teenagers we kind of knew each other and met each other and our paths crossed And and that's kind of you know we, we started there and I suppose I moved away from um heavy rock and you know discovered punk rock and uh you know some of the the music there, and also I was very influenced by the kind of free festival thing. Yeah. I mean, I was I was very young, but you know I remember being 15 years old. That was the first time that me and my friend went to Stonehenge Free Festival,
0: wow. which of
1: course and was amazing. You know, and then we had that summer, which must have been the summer of 1980, uh, and we hitchhiked around Britain, and we went to things like Deeply Vale. Uh, where I saw discharge and Ruts DC because I think Malcolm McLaren just died, um, yeah, and lots of and I, there was a scene in London. It was mostly West London. It was around Ladbroke Grove, um, Notting Hill. Um, there were kind of there was the hippie, oh, that's hippie band, not in a disparaging way. But here and now, yes. and they would play. They went on too with the Fall, so there was this kind of crossover. They weren't kind of exclusively, you know, one genre or whatever. And there was really interesting bands would turn up in those kind of events. Um, you know, The Astronauts, you know, who went on for years and years. I remember they were a part of that. And then bands like Splodgedness Abounds were on the kind of fringes of it. So there was quite, I mean, there were, you know, you remember what it was like, there were loads of gigs. There was a gig pretty much every night of the week. You could go and see a band. There were venues all over the place. So I spent a lot of time... Watching live music, really, and and just loving that whole gig vibe and, and being at those events, yes. um, you know, throughout my teenage years. So, yeah. Did you did you just in back on that f-
0: festival front? Did you go to things like yeah. the Windsor Free Festival, or was that a little bit too early? For
1: your... That was a bit early. Yeah, this is nineteen eighty. So I, I kind of understood that Stone Age had been running for a few years, um, yes. and it was the beginning of the Convoy. The you know the the yeah. Um, so there was, some boy,
0: yes.
1: yeah, there was some great, great times, very small things. I mean, I remember going to Cornwall for a festival and no bands turned up. And I remember the woman in the shop were very nice. You know, uh, oh, I think you've been had. There's no well, It didn't matter. That wasn't the thing. We were just some, there were some of us had guitars. So we had a nice time in a field, you know, and it was that kind of level of, of, of activity that was was great. and was kind of my grounding, I suppose, in, in playing music and uh, wanting to be part of that kind of scene.
0: Yeah, well, the that that fairs and festivals scene was quite big in East Anglia, where I'm based. And um, mm-hmm. there was, the, you know, in the very early 70s, and I was just too young for it, really, mm. was the, the sort of Barsham fair, which kind of went from sort of 71 to 75. And then after mm-hmm. that, there were the Albion fairs, and there was like okay. all these kind of very you know non-electric a lot of them were non-electric there was no electricity yeah. on site there was very yeah. there was a lot of kind of theater companies and clowns and yeah. people dressing up in medieval gear was kind of one of the themes that they liked cuz it okay. it just made everybody they I did an interview with some of the organizers and they said cuz I was yeah. always curious why the medieval theme and it was like well we just yeah. kind of wanted everyone to be I don't know. There was no hierarchy. I'm not sure if that was com- yeah. completely the answer they gave me. But, you know, I thought, oh, okay, then. Because it was that thing of like, why do you want to live in ancient old times? And yeah. It's a bit odd. But, you know, it was a nice idea. And, you know, it was mm. kind of interesting because there was a big movement out of, I say big movement, it was probably tiny really. But there was a mm-hmm. bit of a movement out of London with a lot of the people who were probably in their mid 20s who wanted to buy get into the self sufficiency world and back yeah. to the land and get away from mm. the cities. So there was kind of this interest thing when i've looked at it thinking when when everyone was you know dancing around and and jigging about with this and that you know the sex pistols and the clash and the buzzcocks were playing you know mm-hmm. and at the same time people yeah. were sort of strumming away with fiddles and, and lutes and you know yeah. it was like there was not a huge age difference but it was like yeah. such a cultural difference at the time but it was yeah. interesting what you said about that kind of folk or not folk but the hippie movement and the punk movement mm-hmm. and heavy metal where mm-hmm. you know they they all slightly dipped in each other's toe but then sort of denied yeah. it was a bit like a biblical thing they just denied denied each other's existence and they hated it for yeah. a period and later on they all said yeah i loved all those bands really pink floyd and yeah. still band yeah. people but it was interesting really and like you said the yeah. peace convoy started to grow during the 80s it was very much mm-hmm. a, a it was during that period until the Battle of the Beanfield that the Peace mm. Convoy grew rapidly, really. So mm. um, yes. Mm. So then, so your was your first band before Omega Tribe? Was that um, th- what were the what were the kind of lineups you had before that that one? Or uh, that-
1: I mean, that was just my friend Michael and my friend Nick. That we didn't really do. I, I think the only gig we did together was. stonehenge free festival we just turned up with our guitars before the stage was even erected and just played in a marquee to you know anyone you know anyone who happened to be there um so didn't really have a band that that did gigs proper gigs before amiga tribe so that was the first one really um uh, and that was me myself and daryl who still is in the band now and peter and uh we had a couple of other people, David and Colin, but they didn't really stick around once we had to make a bit of a time commitment to it. Yeah. Uh, so it was the three of us. Um, and then we did a, our first EP with that lineup. And then Pete Fender joined us, who we knew um, through his, uh, his mum uh, who was in the Poison Girls. Um, and, Yeah, Um, and he was extremely good. He was an engineer and he could record things and he had a little four track um, and studio. So, you know, we could do demos with him. So that's how we worked together originally. And then um, he joined us and we made uh, an album um, with him, um, which, yeah, was uh, a good bit of work considering it. It took, I think, a week. We we did it in a week. And, uh, you know, the studio time was very precious. Um, I mean, at that stage,
0: because, I mean, just before you formed, you know, 79, you know, Thatcher gets into power after, you know, quite a few years of, you know this revolving door door of number 10 and then we had you yep. know like the Falkland War and then the miners yeah. you know crisis and then we had the Greenham Common yep. so things were starting to really bubble up at this stage and there was a yep. huge amount of unemployment going on because uh, you know a lot I think why there's so many bands of the 80s was that there was a sort of indirectly a, almost a grant system that we didn't appreciate but there was unemployment mm-hmm. and job seekers allowance and enterprise mm-hmm. allowance mm-hmm. schemes and it just mm-hmm. kept gave people you know thirty five pound or something, and yeah. you know the the housing benefit and council tax and bingo, you were when you're that age, who cares that's enough to live yeah. off. Yeah. so um, yeah. I think that's one of the the kind of cool. it made a lot of creative scenes, really, that that yeah. kind of policy. So yeah. were you kind of driven at this stage, um you know, during, you know musically because of that kind of political landscape that was developing?
1: well, I think I think the drive you know, looking back on it, was just to be creative and say something, really. Um, And I think, you know, I've always done that. Um, And I think politically I I was quite influenced by Poison Girls particularly. I remember seeing them um, for the first time and thinking it was very powerful. Um, You know, a very powerful way of presenting. Because they were a bit different because they were older people. You know, Frances was vice versa, was in her 40s at that point. You know, Lance, who I became very good friends with, was the similar age. So they looked a bit different. They looked um, older and there was an edge to them. You know, vice versa was an amazing presence uh, and a different kind of voice. And maybe just, look, there's a different way of looking at the world. Um, You know, a feminist lens, a a kind of non-conformist lens. And I suppose that influence with the kind of, you know, the kind of free gigs and free festivals or cheap, you know, things that, that I'd experienced felt like a kind of um, was a bit of a political steer against, you know, the system or the establishment or just the kind of the, the, the mapped out routes for, for young people into to work. Um, so I think I kind of started there. Um, but I think the music came before the politics in my case yeah um and yeah
0: were you influenced i mean because i did an interview with a guy from is it flux of pink indians and also a woman called honey was it honey bane as well recently and they all had connections with crass how did how did you sort of find yourself in the company of crass at this stage
1: well um daryl who was playing the bass and he's the person who introduced me to poison girls so this gig was at South Bank Polytechnic, um, and I so I saw Poison and Goals before I saw Crass, but Darrell was massively into Crass. Um, I remember, you know, meeting him on a train out from New Barnet into King's Cross, and I think we were going, we were probably going to Brixton to try and buy weed or something, and he was going with his friend to Northampton to see Crass, you know, he, would, he was following them all over the place um so he introduced me to them i i didn't it's not really my thing i found you know the music i i listened to it a bit but it never really landed with me musically uh poison girls did i thought they had you know they they, they pulled me and i could i got crass it was you know it was a strong kind of thing um but um so daryl really liked Crass, he really liked Poison Girls, he did a, a fanzine, you know, uh, and I helped him with his fanzine, um, you know, Lance Boy from Poison's helped us with printing and stuff, you know, kind of in a quite, a kind of, like, almost fatherly way, um, mm-hmm. showed us around and, and who to talk to and which, how to get the printing done on that, because he did The Impossible Dream, which was his, his, uh, magazine, you exactly. know very arty and Darrell's was was i suppose looking back quite kind of standard you know so he interviewed crass and interviewed fan um boys and girls and he had lots of kind of um collage art with kind of featuring policemen and stuff um and it was called the realities of society right uh, so yeah he he was why we really and he kind of bombarded crass with with any demo tapes and we uh we we actually both went to dial house a number of times uh, i think to, to you know nag nag them asking them if we could do records or whatever and play them our demo tapes and um so we got on bullshit detector which was this collection that they did featuring lots of lots of bands there was we were on the second one i think there were three uh all yeah. um so we were on bullshit detector two and then um they offered us a, a single or an EP on, on Crass Records. Um, yeah, so that, that was kind of how that yeah, So Was
0: the policy of Crass Records at that stage, was there just, you could only just record one, one release or from, from memory of what people have said, you know, they, like, they weren't setting up a record label that you could go, right, with on Crass Records. It's like, oh no, you've done one, you've got to go yeah. elsewhere. Was that, the, was that the policy that, am I getting that right?
1: I think that might have been. I never really understood that or had that communicated to me personally, explicitly. Or I mean, lots of bands did EPs. Uh, that was their format, you know, a seven-inch yeah. thing. Uh, with you know, there was this restriction on artwork. It had to feature this the, the black circle with the exit stencil kind of um, typeface. That was you had to do that. And then when it came to our second release, they set up Corpus Christi Records. Um, and that's what our album appeared on. So I guess what you're saying, yes, that makes sense. They didn't do a second release for bands on, on um crass records. Crass records was just these kind of opportunities for bands to, to get something out, I suppose. Yes, yeah.
0: And did yeah. you record that in Southern Studios? Was it Southern Studios? Yes. The yeah. classic. What was what was that? Was that the first one, which was the Angry Songs Ep? Angry was that Stones, or, yeah. was that in sort of um southern and when you came yeah. to do your album on corpus yeah. Christi, no yeah. love lost was that also recorded in southern
1: no it wasn't um uh southern yeah so we had the kind of crash records southern and then um the the album uh pete fender there was a guy called oh what was his name? i can't remember his name i can picture him i can't remember his name no Anyway, he had a studio that was effectively at the bottom of subvert, the Poison Girls' house, at the bottom of their garden. Kind of in the next street, there were garages, and this studio was in one of them. So Pete Fender knew this guy and, you know, because he was good technically, possibly had done some work with him or helped him with, with bits and pieces. So we got the time in that studio. So that we got a week in that studio, which I think was called Heart and Soul Studios um so this is over in kind of late stone um yeah and we did it there um yeah so you know quite a tight budget for an album you know five days to record a mix and uh, yeah
0: yes i mean at that stage had you started building quite an audience at this um this point of the career because because one thing i've noticed from doing this show that we did have kind of a, there were gatekeepers. I know not everyone managed to get on the John Peel show, but it was a huge mm. influence. And then, you know, the weekly music papers have, mm. you know, had a massive circulation, like NME, yes. Sounds, Melody yeah. Maker. There was also Record yeah. Mirror. And also every city in town had, uh, you know, a venue, an alternative venue yes. somewhere yeah. down the line. So, you know, there was a huge amount of ability to, um, you know, play gigs. And also mm. the fanzine world, you know, that that yeah. started to develop and those networks. So i just wondered if you sort of suddenly found yourself thinking oh actually this is this is going remarkably
1: well (laughs) well i don't think i ever consciously thought that i think what we did do you know um on our part we played a lot we played a lot of gigs um you know and we we just you know i think there was one year and it was kind of i think it might have even been three figures you know um the amount of gigs we did um so we did put ourselves out there in that sense. I think we also got support from Winston Smith, was his non-diploma, who, who wrote for Sounds. Um, right. he, he did have quite a nice piece with us. Um, and then the, the record sold quite well, you know. Um, so, you know, the charts seemed to be a thing, you know, they had the, the indie chart or whatever. Yes. Um, yeah, and you know, we notice that uh, thing. So I think that point, when you see it in the chart like that, you know, because it was indie, I think there was one week where it was like New Order, Depeche Mode, Amiga Tribe, you know, the top three or whatever, you know. So I suppose that then, yeah, I maybe thought, oh, God, you know, that's quite good.
0: Yes, absolutely. Yeah. You know, something yeah. like feeling like one's making progress. Did the yeah. writing and the recording of, it, of your, you know, the album No Love Lost, did that come together quite smoothly at that stage?
1: Yeah yeah absolutely um we we put every, a lot into it i suppose and there was no you know Pete Fender needs to take a lot of credit for for the, the process and just managing it getting the recording done and working out how to do it so effectively and efficiently in that time slot um but we knew our parts we knew the stuff material very well and we put everything into the performances and and got it done you know
0: yes um, yeah At that stage, 83, because you also brought out a a live cassette as well that year, as well. Yes. Which was um, your sort of live bit. I mean, what was kind of interesting, which I found vaguely interesting, was that as the 80s progressed, you know, there was the sort of punk, post punk period, and then Mm. anarcho punk, and then the indie kind of world really developed sort of 83. Mm for the rest of the decade i mean obviously it starts changing but you Mm. know there was that kind of the birth of those indie bands like the smiths and the australian bands like the go-betweens and the triffids and yeah yeah no june brides and people like that did you sort of feel kind of influenced by anything that was going on or were you particularly in your own little sort of bubble at
1: that stage i think we were a bit in our own little bubble uh um yeah i think you know we 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 did get a bit stuck, I think, sound-wise, um, and we, we parted company with Pete Fender. Um, mm. We did a recording that um, it was actually, looking back on it, it was quite good. Um, but he was very into the Beatles, not just musically, but in terms of the methods of recording, so very into... He found he worked with that guy heart and soul studios guy relocated and they found this old neve desk you know so this kind of it was antique then you know so it's real old old school <laughs> equipment uh that kind of warm valvey sound he loved that he kind of almost fetishized getting this sound like the beatles would have had in the 60s kind of thing and we were a bit i suppose down and i were just a bit well that's you know that wasn't our thing you know so I think we started to kind of get, go in slightly different directions and yeah, we, we weren't really creating much uh, new. We've got our set, we've done No Love Lost Set, been really successful, We got to a high point, we played the Stonehenge Festival, you know, with a with loads of people. And so it felt like that there wasn't much new direction in that. So we kind of reinvented a bit and wrote some different stuff. Pete left us. We got um, a different drummer, an original drummer, who'd struggled a little bit with drums. Uh, he very good energy, but in terms of being recording and being on time, he was always a bit of a challenge. So he, he switched to percussion and we got a very tight drummer and we got a saxophone slash flute player and backing vocalists and things like that and made it a different kind of vibe, um, which worked very well. And then I think I just went out puff with it to be honest personally right. <laughs> um, it does yeah. happen
0: so that was your your single with the kind of slightly different lineup minus yeah. me was it's it's a hard life was the yes. release yeah. yeah yeah and that was on corpus christi as well so this is kind it of is. 85 which is obviously we're you know, literally trucking yeah. through the eighties with great enthusiasm. Yeah. So when I don't know when did Red Wedge start to sort of appear and things like that. Yeah, was that, that a little. Been,
1: yes, that would have been around that time, I think. Billy Bragg and Paul Weller, yes. The, the Redskins had they
0: formed by then?
1: Yes, we played with them. We did. There was a the one gig that was Redskins, Poison Girls, amiga Tribe. Yes, yeah. Uh, and we had a manager at this point. That's the other thing. Uh, which was a bit different. So it moved on a lot from, you know, £1.50 for three punk rock bands at the George Roby to kind of slightly bigger gigs. So we played the National Union of Students Conference in Blackpool and it's a huge, great, it wasn't particularly full, but it's a huge, great venue. And we went on tour with the Nightingales. um, Right,
0: Rob Lloyd.
1: Yeah, yeah. We did a tour where it was, we headlined one night, they headlined the other night and, uh, with a duo called toxic shock who were very good so yes uh, yeah
0: so yes i know well i think with rob lloyd i think he started bindaloo records as a sort Mm. of other project but then he got the band called we've got a fuzz box we're going to use it and they became incredibly successful and i think he had to become a label manager by mistake really and um, then you know things happen and that nightingales went in into slightly dormant kind of period yeah but anyway but then sort of 85 86 after five four five years of the band which is Mm. the kind of a classic time I've found doing this interview doing these sessions you know people get together they have that honeymoon period rehearsing first single John Peel plays it get up John Peel session I mean not everyone obviously the Mm. first album things are going kind of well second album Mm. you know people are getting tired and third Mm. album you know by then tired and slightly irritable but irritable mm. sort mm. of um not so much bowel problems but just kind of emotional <laughs> irritation yeah. so yes so did you yeah. did you have a kind of a moment was that a flash you know a sort of uh that came or was it just a slow you just didn't want to do it anymore
1: well i think i was struggling a little bit with the politics of it in some ways i I mean, not the politics of the band particularly, but just the, the the thing that I was struggling with was the notion of, you know, I suppose I'd grown up with this idea of kind of, you know, people would talk about straights, they were kind of straights, and they were all, alter- you know, and, and, you know, so straights were people who had jobs and did that, and then there were us alternative types, and I kind of, I started to think that, Well, if you want to actually be in the world, it's no use just having these kind of big divisions between people. You need to be in the world. So I attempted to re-enter the world, I suppose, and think about what I might want to do in the world. You know, um, I suppose also you're kind of aware that other people have gone to university and had different options ahead of them. and I didn't have those things and I didn't have a trade outside of, you know, singing and i couldn't do that but i wasn't particularly skilled singing i was not you know or guitarist. so yeah needed to kind of find out what i was going to do really and uh, yes. this you know i did move away from from music
0: um, yeah yes because i you know it's interesting because i did you know people like factual and acid i think they were during that period when they were on or in the band they were squatting but mm-hmm. also going to university and there was mm-hmm. that kind of moment of like, okay, the band are really not gonna make it, but mm. I'm gonna continue with my kind of more professional career. And mm-hmm. yeah, it's they sound like it was kind of a good moment to move on, really. So did you mm. also have that kind of actually I'm just going to disappear a little bit, doing a bit of a ziggy stardust and um yeah. not reinvent yourself, but sort of just take your time to find out who you were.
1: Well, I think so. I mean I mean, I left Omega Tribe. At that point, I thought I would still do music. I wrote lots of songs, but you know, looking back, it wasn't. They weren't. I didn't have a strong enough sort of persona as a performer to to carry that off. Um, um, and so, I did. Th- you know, I I wanted to kind of find a way into to something better than the kind of job options that were available to me. Um, so I wanted to get an education. Um, and I, I kind of slowly uh I did voluntary work with the elderly, stuff like that. Um, and I got a job on the ambulance, working for the London Ambulance Service. So uh some kind of you know respectable CV of kind of responsibility and care, I suppose. Um and then I got a job in a school. Um and um, I think I was 26 by this point. It was like a teaching assistant type role. It was some kind of government initiative. It was a special school, a school for children with special words. And all the people there said, why don't you go to college and be a teacher? And you know, I said, well, I haven't got any A-levels. Or anything. I can't do that, you know. Um, but they have these schemes, mature student things. Once you go for a certain age, you know, so these, these people said they put in a word for me and they got me a place at Middlesex Polytechnic. Uh, I mean, I had to do, they had entry tests and, and stuff uh, to do if you didn't have the qualifications. But there weren't many places in the country that had those kind of, that kind of accessibility for people who didn't have any formal qualifications. Um, yes. And I was lucky that I didn't have to do an access course or anything like that. I just, uh, I was offered a place.
0: Yeah. That was so good. That, yes, yeah, that's was good. I mean, it's funny because there was a guy from Wasted Youth talk about his kind of life and he he actually did the access course and then went on to university okay. and yeah. Developed yeah a sort of a, a other life and, and yeah. a profession and um yeah. and now sort of is now doing music again but with yeah. you know balance yeah. and things for various reasons so then because the band continued slightly without you didn't it for a while yes it
1: did yeah yeah i went to see them a few times uh they did um i don't i'm a bit vague on the detail of that to be honest i don't Know exactly what happened. I know that they did continue. I know that they had a relationship with Buster Blood Vessel, and there was a a brass bit and a violin player. But I, I'm a bit vague on the detail. I don't think they recorded. I think they tr- have probably recorded things, but I don't think anything ever got released.
0: Yes, uh, that's fair um, enough. Did you then? Were you part of the band reforming again in '95?
1: Yes. Yes. I mean, I carried on doing my stuff and honing my kind of stage persona, but not, no one was really very interested. But, you know, one or two people still remember the things I did in, in the later 80s and 90s. And then it was vice subversa's 60th birthday, I think. Um, and uh, Pete Fender asked, well, you know, would you want to do it? And yes, yeah, so we reformed we to do that uh, gig. And I don't think, and then we also did Holidays in the Sun, which was uh, what's now called Rebellion Festival Mm. in Blackpool.
0: Right. Uh, Yeah. Yes. I mean, I think then you probably, it was probably quite soon after you'd finished. Now, if you did it, you know, people would sort of be flocking to see the band, wouldn't they? But did that that go well, the Rebellion, yours, Holiday in the Sun?
1: No. (laughs) It didn't go. We just played to this emptying room, uh, I think. I, I mean, it's a funny thing. It's almost like, I mean, a lot of people, because Amiga Tribe is a, a thing now, and we go out and play, and people say, well, you know, what, why don't you do your own stuff? Well, because, like, that's not who we are anymore. It's like, yeah, we can do one or two, but I can't, you know, none of us can invest any kind of passion for just being a tribute to our younger selves. It doesn't It doesn't make any sense. It's. It's a strange thing. I know lots of bands do it, and it works for them, but I can't do that. you know.
0: No. Well, actually, Rob Lloyd's the same, I think, for various mm. reasons. It's a bit like, well, A, we can't be bothered to learn the old songs, which yeah. are just going to be quite hard work and we can't remember yeah. them. <laughs> and, yeah. uh, so that's yeah. one good reason for not wanting to play them. B, mm. uh, like you said, it was like, well, that wasn't us. I mean, I think we... it's okay, possibly, if you're a, one of those bands selling millions of. T- you know ticket sales and yeah. that's what the fans the stadium wants to hear the classics then you think well yeah here's course. the classics but actually you know if if you're really doing it for yourself and then mm. like Rob said you know it's like why, why would we want to try and remember how to play a song and also the members of the band are different now so yeah. They don't, they're not interested particularly I mean so I think that's kind of artistic integrity but then so over the decades then so you did you came there was a compilation wasn't there that came out was it
1: on yes uh,
0: rugger bugger Records? yes
1: yeah yeah that's right um there was a bit of a, a thing uh around about the year 2000 I think to to re-release No Love Lost um and I think Pete and Daryl uh, kind of wanted to bring out some something else, you know, because there were other snippets, bits and demo, or whatever unreleased bits. So that's they did that make tea, not war thing. Um, and yeah, so that that happened. We didn't do any gigs around that time, I don't think. I mean, we had tried to do a band. Called Charlie in the in the nineties. After about a couple of mega tri-weeks. we realised that wasn't going to work for us. So we did. We made a recording. It was, you know, I thought it was quite good actually, but it didn't last. Pete didn't have much stamina for that project. I think once the drummer he was working with, who was called Craig, left, I think Pete's heart went out of that, which was a shame because I was kind of just getting going, was writing stuff at that point. But that's you know that's how it is. So that that came out um yeah in in 2003 or something I think yeah
0: yes and then you sort of you make the 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 kind of more of a commitment is it 2016 that Mm, Daryl you and Sonny reunite and that's so did you kind of all come together at this stage like some planetary kind of
1: um alignment and and sort of think
0: yeah let's just do this
1: well, I, what happened was, um, Daryl had often said to me, you know, we've met, we've got it. How about getting the band up together? And I was always like, Daryl, just let it go. It's in the past. It's gone. You know, just Bleh. that was always my position. And then Sonny said, Well, I've got this gene deal. Do you want to come for a jam? That's how it was put to me. So I was like, Yeah, okay. You know, I could. I'll, I'll read my poetry, and you'll play some jazz, and it'll be fun. Um, but when I got there, they were like, Why don't we play some of the old ones? Why don't we play this? Blah 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 blah. And then, like you know, in that week, oh, Sonny's made a Facebook page and said, "Ameeta Tribe have reformed." And okay, so I just kind of went with uh, the, 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 um, you know, the, the, the wave that they had uh, generated, and um, yeah. And it was kind of fun, I guess. So
0: yeah, it was it was cool. Yeah. Yes. God, that was that was brilliant. So then coming up to the current diet time, we obviously mm. had the, the strange decade with the lockdown, but then you mm. brought a new album out, which came out yeah. um, I do believe last year, New Peace yeah. Movement. So was yeah. this one that you were songs that you had sort of written roughly before the lockdown, or were these kind of the, the <sighs> kind of the kind of workings of somebody locked in a room?
1: No, I mean, a mix, really. Some of them were definitely lockdown songs. I think from about, there were songs from about 2018, uh, you know, on there as well. Um, But yeah, I mean, one of the things that got me through the lockdown was a big help. I mean, I was okay in terms of work. That wasn't an issue for me. Um, But uh, Punk for the Homeless, I don't know if you know that, organisation, but they did um, live stream events. And, uh, you know, I, I ask, quite fancy that because, um, you know, it would suit the kind of solo format because you're just doing it in your home. So um, and so that helped with writing, you know, when you write a new song, it's like, oh, well, you got a chance to play it to someone. And um, yes. so that collection kind of, you were all songs that I kind of played live to my computer or whatever over, over that kind of lockdown period so yeah that's where they were kind of you know developed really um yeah
0: yeah, yeah. i mean because i was just looking at the facebook page i mean this you know you've got a great look great image i mean are you and you know the the posters i mean you've really sort of you've got your um i know you probably think it's a dirty word marketing quite well sorted at this stage haven't you and um are you kind of really enjoying yeah. the whole process again the kind of the identity and the and the kind of the gigging.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I really, I'm a, I love performing. I mean, you I know, I I've done a little bit of acting. There was a funny little theatre company called the Lenya Hobnoobs Theatre Company, which had Vice <laughs> Versa, and Lance De Boyle from Poison Girls as actors, and um Richard Famous and uh, Pete Fender were the musicians, they were all musicals, they're both like ridiculous musicals, um, Desert Storm, the musical, AIDS, the musical, uh, Mother Russia is a lesbian, all about the fall of the Iron Curtain. So, kind of political theatre, and I was involved in that. So, I love the acting, you know. There was singing, and I like the I like the connecting with people that comes when you perform live. And I always say this: it's always like some you know we play places, and not very many people have been have come, you know, but. Even if there's six people in the room, if two of those people at the end say, wow, that really moved me, then that's it. That's that's why I'm there, you know, and it's it's really lovely. I really I really cherish and value that. Yes, Um, absolutely.
0: It's an an important thing to do. I mean, if you could have whispered something to like your 16 year old self starting out, is there anything in particular you would have said, oh, yeah, I would have just said that or nudged him in this direction. Even if that person ignored you. (laughs)
1: Hard, you know, that's hard. I don't know that that 16-year-old that, that was in a very good place to listen. I might just have said, you know, enjoy the moment. You know, just 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 do what you what you feel. Do what you feel. It's, you know, I think for a lot of people who write songs, poetry, book, whatever, it's kind of self-care, really. It's kind of, you know, something horrendous happens in the world and you can write a song that helps you process it and at least address it and at least communicate to others, this has impacted me, you know, and I want to share what I think about it. And if that moves you, then we could share something. And that's that's the whole thing.
0: Yes. and Do you feel that now, you know, because there is, I don't know. I mean, nostalgia is a bit of a weird one, let's face it. But there mm. is kind of an interest in in this kind of decade a bit more from, since doing this, you know, this yeah. show and, and these yeah. bands I'm sure there wasn't that much, but now, you know, the people are sort of unearthing it. And I think it's sort of like a fascination of like how much stuff there was and mm. how good a lot of it was as well. And I must admit, I, I did miss an awful lot of it the first time. So I've kind mm. of started going back, kind of discovering whole new scenes and new bands mm. and, and being kind of fascinated with it and thinking, wow, this is great. Not So it's not going back, listen to the kind of glory bands that I listened to because it's like, well, mm. I know them and I'm a bit sick to death of them as much as i loved them at the time but then it's like all well, these yeah. other ones and you think oh this is yeah. fascinating you know so i just yeah. wondered if also you've had a sense that people have been kind of curious and have started to you know come out not just the oldies but the some younger kids who are sort yeah. of slightly curious with the band and some of the sounds
1: yeah i think so i think i think it's nice when you, you get uh, um i mean i think what we found playing live is 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 there is a bit of kind of punk nostalgia that some of us, in myself included, sometimes find a little bit dull because it's a lots of older guys who just wear T-shirts and jeans and they kind of... It's, mm. it's not very interesting, really. Whereas there are a lot of kind of younger, more vibrant, different people. And when you get that kind of energy in the room, I mean... They tend to be more uh, queer-friendly spaces, to be honest, less kind of male-dominated music. <laughs> <and> more, <laughs> because a lot of punk rock is like that. A lot of it is very male, very aggressive, very kind of And I don't think we ever were really like that. We've always had a quite a softer touch about our stuff. Um, so yeah, those spaces, that when that energy is in the room, it can be really, really lovely. You know, and that's like you mentioned rebellion. We went up to Blackpool. We did a free gig in a pub in Blackpool, and you never know what those. You know, because it's you never know who's going to come. There are there are, you know, traditions in um punk and post-punk that are not very attractive. You know, kind of Nazis, etc. <laughs>
0: um, yes,
1: but. The people who came were kind of, you know, people came and they caught us. They come from all over and they noticed that me and playing in a pub down the cor- down the corner. So they finished off their rebellion weekend with seeing us in, in, uh, you know, on a Sunday night. And so it was a really lovely energy, and that is, you know, a really special thing for which I, you know, which I really, really do value. Um, so more of that, hopefully. That's our kind of goal. Um, yeah no
0: I you know and actually I think that from speaking to so many bands I mean there seems to be a little bit more of that ethos going around rather than you know and also being a bit more realistic and feeling a bit like you can't really always sing those songs when you what you wrote when you were 16 or 18 because that's not the person you are now so much you know you need to give them a hug and say well done but you know sentiments and those some of those political ideas well, quite different yeah. to how you feel now. So yeah, it's interesting. Did you ever get sort of um any dates abroad? Have you ever sort of done any kind of, yeah. kind of shows in Holland or Germany or anything like that?
1: I mean last century, yes, Europe, uh Holland, uh yeah, mostly Holland a couple of times really. This century we've been to the States twice um in 2017, 2018, and we're we're going again this year. Oh uh, what festival are you doing there? Uh, it's not, it's just a kind of trek across obscure venues. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't Excellent. think really there's
0: No, because I know that in Vegas they do this punk bowling weekend and okay. it is kind mm. of funny when you see the lineup. you know, some mm. of these really well-known but also mm. obscure British punk bands that you think,
1: wow, yeah. that's impressive. Yeah.
0: So I just wondered yeah. if, the, if you were sort of, but you've, you've got a sort of more of an independent sort of,
1: yeah I a very really. a diy kind of uh tour with it with a um because we were on grow your own records and they have just this week released uh an album by dove who have been knocking around from south california and they uh they are younger than us but they they of course have reinvented invented that kind of anarcho punk aesthetic um yeah so we're going on to with them, and we're going to start in the East and make our way West and then come back from there. And we're also going round Europe. I think it's France, Holland, Germany, with the system in January. Up to January, July. July. Um, yes. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah.
0: It's all good. It's all good. Well, yeah. look. That, i'm so pleased it's all going so well and um, you're okay. enjoying it so much because yeah. let's face it it's good to have something positive to think focus on that's the main yeah, thing isn't yeah. it? yes so it um is. yes and if you anybody needs to find out more about the band you've got a bandcamp page yes with all the material on you've got a facebook okay. page as well is there any other places you can be towards
1: uh instagram instagram facebook and bandcamp is is it for now? yes
0: on your social media platform sites it's got yeah. to be done hasn't it us oldies yeah. twitter and tiktok just give that a miss for the moment yes no. <laughs> <laughs> well look thank you ever so much and if you want i can always send you the link and you can always put it on your page and um yes please. Thank it, you. it's always good but thank you again just for this yeah. this has been magic i really good. appreciate it but um yeah all the best for the year it sounds fantastic thank you, thank you. and um yes dust off your passport and off you go Absolutely. <laughs> okay look have a lovely thank evening you. take care cheers thank you very much
1: bye-bye bye-bye
0: and that dear listener just in case you hadn't guessed but you probably had is the end of the interview a massive thank you to who vivian to forgive me the time for that interview that was omega tribe and um, yes this has been the c86 show david So if you want to contact me you can on facebook twitter instagram just do c86 show keep it positive and groovy That's what I say. And all these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean. So that's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe.